Thank you for those songs, Craig. As we talk about the sermon today of the temple, this is a great way for us to start by singing praise to the God who resides in that temple. Uh, my name is Charlie Trim. I'm happy to be here and to speak about this topic. One reason is my day job is an Old Testament professor. I love talking about the Old Testament. So give me a chance to talk about Old Testament. I will definitely do that. And so if you also like to talk about the Old Testament, come see me at some point and we can enjoy life together and we'll talk about the Old Testament. The specific topic today, you can see on the screen, holiness matters, the destruction of the temple. The other reason I'm excited about this is a great excuse for me to show lots of pictures of Israel. And one of my aspects of my job at Biola is I'm in charge of the study tour to Israel. We're actually passing out applications this week to go to Israel in May. So if you want to go and you're a Biola student, come talk to me and I'll give you some instructions. And for the vast majority of you who are not Biola students, you can go as well because a year from now, Redemption Hill will be going to Israel. And so if you want some more information on that, you can look in your bulletin and get the details. And I'll highlight a few places today in the pictures where if you go with Redemption Hill, you will get to see some of these places. For example, this iconic view right here. Uh, I took this picture standing on the Mount of Olives, looking west towards Jerusalem, across the Kidron Valley, and that is Temple Mount. Uh, today, you can see the Dome of the Rock uh, very clearly there. It looks like it's covered in gold, because it is covered in gold. It's got a thin layer of gold all around. It glistens and shines in the sun. It's a beautiful building. And as you can see in this aerial view, pretty much wherever you are looking at Jerusalem, the Dome of the Rock just dominates the city. You can see it from so many different angles. The reason I want to talk about the Dome of the Rock today, of course, is the location of the Dome of the Rock is most likely where the temple was in the Bible, which is our topic for today. As we talk about temple, there's actually two temples in the Bible. There's the second temple, which is what Jesus saw, and then there's the first temple. And so we'll spend most of our time today talking about the first temple that Solomon built in the Old Testament. This is a model of Jerusalem with the second temple, and this model is at the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. And so if you go with Redemption Hill, you'll get to see this model at the Israel Museum. It's a great picture to help us think about what Jerusalem would have looked like at the time of Jesus. First of all, you can notice the temple is huge compared to everything else. Pretty much no matter where you are in the city at the time of Jesus, you can look up and see the temple. And so architecturally, it dominates the city. And theologically, it dominates the city because the temple is so important. This is a picture Pastor Robert showed last week. It's the same model, but from a different angle. There's the Temple Mount at the top of the picture. I'm showing this to highlight how much Jerusalem grew over the years. When David conquered Jerusalem, the only part of the city that existed is that strip going right down the middle under Temple Mount. That's the original city of Jerusalem, uh, sometimes called the City of David. Uh, here is a map. So the bottom part there is the original city of Jerusalem that was conquered by David. And then Solomon expanded to the north with Temple Mount, and then it kept on expanding in the years after that. But it was originally a very small city. And when the temple was built, everything else was under the temple. You would look up 
to the temple. So geographically, it was very important. Just to remind us what the temple might have looked like, once again, this is a picture Pastor Robert showed last week. He talked about some of the various parts of this picture. This is the courtyard area. And then inside that building would be the holy place, which is the the big room. And then the smaller room in the back is the holy of holies. I like this picture just because it emphasizes the, the glamour, the magnificence of this building. It would have been an amazing place to see so much wealth concentrated here. This is, of course, based on the tabernacle going even further back. Tabernacle is not quite as glamorous because it was mobile. They had to pick it up and carry it around. But the same basic structure, an outer courtyard, and then the, the room, the holy place, and then the holy of holies. If you go to the far south of Israel today, there's a group that has reconstructed the tabernacle, and you can wander around the whole thing. You can even go into the holy of holies and look inside the Ark of the Covenant, and no one will strike you down dead. Unfortunately, because this is so far in the south, if you go to Israel or Thompson Hill, you don't get to see this. But if you do get to see this someday, it's a great experience to see what a tabernacle would have been like. This is a slide from last week as well. If God is always present everywhere, why do we need a temple? Well, the second sentence here shows us why. Tabernacle and temple are about God experientially manifesting that presence. And so you're in the presence of God in a special way when you were in tabernacle or a temple. My topic today, however, is much more depressing than Pastor Roberts last week. Mine is about failure. Failure is not something that we like to talk about very much. Uh, there are various studies that show social media can be really depressing. And one reason for that is the kind of material is posted on social media. We post things that are really good, accomplishments, things that succeeded, our really good lunch, whatever the case might be. And so as we go through Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, whatever else, you see all these good things, and you start comparing this front of other people to the true self that we have with all of our failures. And sometimes that makes us depressed because we don't see the failures of others. And if failure is talked about on social media, it's someone else's failure that we're complaining about. It's not our failure. This is nothing new. People throughout history didn't like to talk about their failures. Uh, My specialty for research is warfare in the ancient Near East. I just wrote a massive book on it. I read thousands and thousands and thousands of texts of kings talking about their battles and rituals and letters and so on. They almost never talk about their own defeats. I found maybe 10, 15 in the entire ancient Near East of kings who would even talk about friendly casualties, let alone their own defeats. And so this seems to be part of who we are as humans. We don't like to talk about our own failures. But this is part of the contrast of the Old Testament. The Old Testament has no problem talking about Israelites' failures. And what we're going to focus on today is one massive failure, the destruction of the temple. Or to put it in theological terms, you can see the line going across the bottom of all these slides, when heaven meets earth. Well, the temple where heaven meets earth, is destroyed. What does that mean theologically? What does that mean relationship-wise? Have we lost God? What does this even mean? And to make matters worse, in the ancient Near East, 
temples are not usually destroyed. You really have to make a king mad for him to destroy your temple. Because gods are usually connected to land, not people. And so when a king came in and conquered a land, that king would start worshiping whoever the god of the land is. And to make sure you don't get off on on the wrong foot, you wouldn't want to destroy their temple right away. So they would try really hard to preserve the temple. And so temple destructions are pretty rare. But Israel gets a temple destruction. Open your Bibles to 2 Kings. We'll be jumping around quite a bit today. But Kings will be a bit of a foundation for us. So you can stick your bulletin and Kings will be coming back once or twice over the course of the sermon. 2 Kings 24 is where we'll begin. This is the very end of the book of Kings and the very end of Israel and the land. And Babylon has arisen as an imperial power. Now let's see how they interact with Israel. 2 Kings 24, verse 11. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon, himself and his mother and his servants and his officials and his palace officials. The king of Babylon took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign and carried off all the treasures of the house of Yahweh and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold in the temple of Yahweh, which Solomon, king of Israel, had made as Yahweh had foretold. So at this point, I put the date up here just to help us keep track of a few events. This is 597. Nebuchadnezzar comes in, conquers Jerusalem, and takes anything of value from the temple. So we saw those reconstructions of how glorious that temple would have been. It's all gone. Temple's still there, but everything that made it look awesome is gone. That lasts for 10 years until 586. Turn forward to 2 Kings chapter 25, starting in verse 8. In the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem, and he burned the house of Yahweh, and the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. Just taking all the stuff wasn't good enough. Ten years later, we're going to burn the whole thing down. Now, we don't have archaeological evidence for the destruction of the temple, but we do for some of the houses he destroyed. So this is a picture from the oldest part of Jerusalem. This is just down the hill from Temple Mount. And this is apparently a pretty rich neighborhood. And so you can imagine someone living in this house, seeing their own house being destroyed, And looking up the hill and seeing the temple on fire. And you can imagine the despair that they would have felt. One of the ways that we know this is a rich neighborhood is what we see in this picture. If you see right in the middle, there's a rectangular stone with a hole in the middle. You can put your critical thinking skills to work. Maybe guess what that is. That is indeed an ancient toilet. In ancient times... Very few people had toilets in their house. So this means it's a rich neighborhood. Uh, This particular toilet has fallen into the cesspool. It originally would have been two or three feet higher. 
and archaeologists were actually able to do tests on the excrement to discover what people were eating at the time of the Babylonian siege. And what they discovered is it was really bad because they're under siege. There's no food, and so they were eating anything they could get their hands on. Kings gives us, in a sense, an unemotional account. It just says, he burned the house of Yahweh. But other parts of Scripture give us a little more emotion to that. So keep your bulletin in Kings. We'll be back later. But for now, turn to Ezekiel. You can go ahead and look at the table of contents if needed. Should be approximately halfway through your Bible. Find Jeremiah and then keep on going. This will count as your annual glimpse of Ezekiel. (laughs) Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 18. The date on this is 592. So this is just between the two events I told you about. It's after the plundering, but before the burning. Ezekiel 10, verse 18. Then the glory of Yahweh went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. So the glory of Yahweh is a reference to that special presence of God. It arrived at the tabernacle back in Exodus. And when Solomon built the temple, there's an image of the glory of God coming to the temple. And now Ezekiel is seeing it leave. Turn forward a chapter, chapter 11, verse 22. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them. And the glory of the God of Israel was over them. And the glory of Yahweh went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. That's the Mount of Olives. That's where that first picture was taken that I showed you today. And so the glory of the God is departing from the temple. Not only have the riches been taken from it, but now God himself is gone. It's an empty shell. Turn back one book to Lamentations. If you got to Jeremiah, you went too far. Lamentations, chapter 2. Lamentations is a book most likely written shortly after the destruction of the temple in 586. And it gives us a full sense of the despair the Israelites would have felt. And we're just going to read a few verses from that. Lamentations 2, verse 5. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruins its strongholds. And he has multiplied in the daughters of Judah, mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. Yahweh has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath. And in his fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary, He has delivered into the hands of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of Yahweh as on the day of festival. Go down to verse 11. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine? as they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. What can I say for you? To what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is vast as the sea, 
who can heal you. Great despair. And I hope we can feel some of that despair as we think about the destruction of the temple. And this mourning was not something the Jews got over quickly. As a matter of fact, they established a yearly date when they would continue to mourn the destruction of the temple. This is called Tisha B'Av. It's usually late summer, July, August, somewhere around there. And this is a fast day. So religious Jews, until today, they fast for an entire day. And they go to synagogue and read the entire book of Lamentations. And they mourn the first temple destruction, the second temple destruction, and a few other tragedies throughout Jewish history. And so it's a day for them to embrace the mourning and the despair that Israel would have felt. For ancient Israel, the question immediately arises, how did this happen? This is God. Why is the temple destroyed? And a large part of the Old Testament is written to address that question. Why did this happen? The answer, to some extent, was already answered last week by Pastor Roberts. So he had these three phrases, which were really helpful. He, in a sense, wrote my sermon for me this week, and so I'm very thankful for that. He focused on personal, relational, and experiential. Faith needs to be characterized by these three adjectives. And so what he is effectively fighting against there is legalism. Legalism gets so focused on the rules, you forget why the rules are there in the first place. Why do we have them? Because personal faith in God, relational, experiential, and so on. What I want to talk about today is the danger on the other side. So the opposite danger of legalism is a big word I want to teach you. I'm a prof. I have to teach you a word at some point today. Antinomianism. Antinomianism is against law. Or to put it bluntly, you don't care what anyone does ever. So if legalism is all about the rules, antinomianism is you can do whatever you want. I don't care at all. I love how Pastor Robert phrased this. Notice he did not say personal instead of propositional or experiential instead of ethical. He said, more than. He's not saying we can ditch those things. We still need them. And so what happened with ancient Israel is they essentially became antinomian. They forgot what you see in the second part of that, propositional, ritual, and ethical. And so that's going to be the structure for our talk today. We're going to look and see how Israel failed in each of these ways. But before we do that, I want to give us a warning from this man. You might recognize him, or at least recognize the name. This is C.S. Lewis. You might have read Narnia, Screwtape Letters, many other good things that he wrote. I want to focus on a really obscure essay he wrote called Meditation in a Tool Shed. There's not many people who can walk into a tool shed and make a theological observation based on the experience, but C.S. Lewis can so the story is, he walked into a tool shed, and there was a hole in the roof, and there was a beam of light coming down. And so he stood and looked at the beam of light for a few moments, and then he walked into the beam of light, and he looked out, and he was able to see there was a tree out there, there was the sky, clouds, the sun, and so on. And being C.S. Lewis, he immediately thought of an analogy. What we often do is we step back and we look at something from a distance. We keep ourselves detached. 
And we think of this as true study. We want to be as distant as possible. So when we read the Old Testament, what we're tempted to do is we praise people or we condemn them. And so the temptation for us today as we read about failure is to say, those dumb Israelites, what are they doing? The good thing I'm not like them. And Lewis says, no, no, no. What you need to do in addition is go stand in the beam of light. Or for terms of literary thought, go walk in their shoes for a while. Don't just condemn them, but realize I do the same kind of thing. I fail in the same way. And so as we go through these various topics today, be open to the Holy Spirit guiding us. How do we fail in similar ways? The first point, personal more than propositional, is just one thing I want to look at, and that is there needs to be one temple. There's not a whole bunch of temples, one temple. And Deuteronomy 12, which you can see on the screen there, highlights that. But you shall seek the place that Yahweh your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and everything else. One temple, and what we see later on, that one temple's in Jerusalem. Pretty straightforward. But the Israelites don't follow this. Turn to 1 Kings. So we were in 2 Kings earlier. Turn to 1 Kings now. The context here is shortly after the death of Solomon. His son Rehoboam comes to the throne. And Rehoboam is not a very good king. And so the northern tribes rebel and start their own country under a man named Jeroboam, which is unfortunate for us English speakers because they sound very similar, Jeroboam and Rehoboam. Jeroboam has a problem. The temple, the center of Yahweh worship, is in Jerusalem, which belongs to Rehoboam. What is he going to do? So 1 Kings 12, verse 26. Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of Yahweh at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. And so he says, I need to have my own temples. There's not been a lot of archaeology at Bethel, but there has been at Dan. So I'll show you a few pictures of that. You can see this, that Dan is a beautiful site. It's one of my favorite places to go. If you go to Israel with Redemption Hill, you will get to go to Dan and see some of the places here. The archaeologists at Dan have discovered a sacred area, a temple. Uh, here's an aerial view of the temple. So just to the left, you can see a metal structure that marks where a gigantic altar would have been located. They found a few parts of that. And then there's a square structure. That's the platform, presumably where the center of religious activity would have taken. So most likely, that platform there is where the golden calf would have been. And so this is an interesting place where we can look at a text in Scripture and look at a geographical location and connected to. Sadly, it's of the Israelites disobeying God. It should not have happened. Now, you might say, okay, but that's the Israelites. That's the northern kingdom. 
none of them follow God. Surely the southern kingdom, they'll be better at it. Plus, they have Jerusalem. Why do they need another temple? Well, they felt the need to make more temples themselves, and archaeologists have discovered various temples in the south as well. So one I want to talk about is Beersheba. There's three I want to show you. The first one is Beersheba. And at Beersheba, they found this very large altar. So if you go to the Israel Museum, the first thing you see in the archaeology wing is this very large altar. And so you'll get to see this if you go to Redemption Hill Israel trip. This altar from Beersheba, you can see immediately as well, this is a different climate than Dan. So Dan is in the far north, Beersheba is in the far south. And so there's a biblical phrase from Dan to Beersheba, meaning all Israel. And so Beersheba is in the desert. You can see a little bit of green here, but this picture was taken in the springtime when it was really wet. It only gets less green from there. So about this time of year, there is no green in Beersheba. At Beersheba, they reconstructed the altar so that you can get a sense for how big it was, or you can climb on it if you want to. Here's one of my children climbing on the altar. Now, at Beersheba, they don't know exactly where this altar was or anything, but they think this altar is probably going to be way too big for someone's house. Like, you just don't put that in your living room. So probably it's going to be part of a temple. And this is supported by what they found in another city named Arad, A-R-A-D. This is about 30 miles to the east of Beersheba, also in the desert. You can see there, not a lot of green here either. And at Arad, which is more of a fortress than a city, they found a complete Israelite temple. So this picture is a picture I took of Biola students uh, inside the temple. There's several getting on the altar, ready to be sacrificed there as well. And the structure is set up the same way as the Jerusalem temple. There's the outer courtyard. That's where most of the students are located. And then just to the left, there's a long room. That's the holy place. And then there's a smaller niche in the back left. That's the holy of holies. And so here is an entire temple in the same pattern as Jerusalem in a Judean city. The last one I want to talk about is at Lachish. Uh, it's a little bit greener at Lachish. It's up in the hills, gets some more rain, but it's still in the south. At the gates complex, they didn't discover an entire temple, but they found a worship area. So it's called a gate shrine. So you could worship there on your way in or out to the city. And so as you walk through this gates, just to the right is the area of the gate shrine. Here's a picture. Notice anything familiar? Yes, that is a toilet right in the middle of the gate shrine. You don't normally put toilets in gate shrines or other sacred areas. Archaeologists think most likely what happens is that's not the place a toilet is supposed to be. Someone put it there intentionally to desecrate the sacred area. And when you look at dating of archaeology and biblical stories, this is most likely the work of Hezekiah. So we know Hezekiah brought reforms to the country. This was probably part of it. And that altar at Beersheba and the temple at Arad, those were all destroyed as well about the same time period, also probably by Hezekiah. So in a sermon filled with lots of depressing things, there's a little bit of hope. Hezekiah does bring some reform to the country. How do we think about that for us? In upcoming sermons, Pastor Robert's going to be talking about temple 
as Jesus, but also temple as the church. We together are the temple today. And so just like there's one temple in the Old Testament, I think the one temple for us today is the church, the church gathered, the local church. And there are many among Christians today who want to downplay the church in some way, whether it's just, I'm going to hang out with my Christian friends at Starbucks and call that church, or just say, me and Jesus, that's church, that's all I need. I think this kind of analogy helps us remember, no, it's more than that. We need church, uh, gathered church together. With all of its flaws, we are certainly not perfect, but with all of its flaws, we need to be gathering together as the temple of God today. Second point, relational more than ritual. The idea here is even when they got the right place in Jerusalem, they still managed to mess it up occasionally. And so I'm going to show you three of the worst examples of that. The first one, they somehow lost the Bible. This is frankly a weird story. I'm not entirely sure on some of the details. Josiah is a good king. He reforms the temple. And as they're cleaning out the temple, they find the book of the law. This is probably Genesis through Deuteronomy. Now, I don't think it means they completely forgot its existence. This is probably like an official copy or something like that. But there's still a strong sense of they forgot the Bible and stopped acting on it. And so Josiah brings reform. He brings lamentation. And they seek to follow it again. So whatever it means, it's not good to lose the Bible in Yahweh's temple. Kings using the temple. There's a story from Chronicles about a king named Uzziah. When he, Uzziah, was strong, he grew proud to his destruction, for he was unfaithful to Yahweh his God, entered the temple of Yahweh to burn incense on the altar of incense. Now, other places in the ancient Near East, kings are priests. They always go together, except Israel. In Israel, king and priest are two separate offices. And so I think what's going on in the background here, Uzziah becomes strong and proud. He wants to be like those other kings. And so he acts in a way that he wants to act against what God wants. And as you read on in the story, it's to his own destruction. Most disturbing, though, is idolatry. Turn to 2 Kings chapter 23. So we were in 24 earlier with the destruction of the temple. This is just a few years before the destruction of the temple. Josiah is reforming Judah. Now let's look at part of that reform. So 2 Kings 23, verse 4. And the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest and the priests of the second order and the keepers of the threshold to bring out of the temple of Yahweh all the vessels made for Baal, for Asherah, for all the hosts of heaven. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. He deposed the priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high places at the cities of Judah and around Jerusalem. Those also who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and the moon and the constellations and all the hosts of heavens. And he brought out the Asherah from the house of Yahweh outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron and burned it at the brook Kidron and beat it to dust and cast the dust of it upon the graves of the common people. They're worshiping Baal in Yahweh's temple. This is incredible. Here's a temple dedicated to Yahweh. And they said, it'd be a good idea to bring in some other deities here too. How could this possibly be a good idea? 
And apparently it happens multiple times because Hezekiah had already removed the idols from the temple and Josiah has to do it again. And so even when they're in the right place, they still managed to mess it up. We have some pictures of what these idols might have looked like. Here's a statue of Baal. Uh, This one's pretty small. It's like this big or so. He's an active divine warrior. He seeks to fight the enemy and so on. Here's a Stella. It might be hard to see some of the details, but it gives us a good image of Baal. In one hand, above his head, he's got a mace. A mace is a stick with a rock on the end. And the other hand, he's got a staff, which looks really weird. So on the bottom of the staff is a blade, so it functions as a spear. On the top, looks like some tree branches or something. That symbolizes lightning because he's a storm god. And so one of the reasons you would worship Baal is to bring the rain so that your crops grow. So it's a matter of wealth. You worship Baal to bring you wealth. However, there's something else in the picture. Under his arm in front of him is a little guy. You might not have even realized there's a human there. But there's there's a little guy in front. That's the king. And so the idea is the Canaanite deity protects the Canaanite king. So why worship Baal? It's an idolatry of power. Baal will protect you. And so this is one of the reasons why the Israelites would worship Baal. I also have pictures of Asherah, but I decided not to show them to keep it somewhat family friendly. But the idea is fertility. If you want to have a child, worship Asherah. Thinking in contemporary terms, there's pretty easy connections. To some extent, we are losing the Bible. At a basic level, we just don't know what's in it anymore. This is where I so appreciate the work of Ken Birding and others like him to restore biblical literacy. Let's, let's figure out what's in this thing so that we don't effectively lose it. At a higher level, though, there are many in the church who might know what the Bible says and just don't care. Just push it to the side. What the Bible says doesn't matter as much as what I feel is best. And so this is a strong movement in the church today that we need to resist. Leaders like Uzziah are unfortunately far too common. There's been a whole series of evangelical pastors in the past few years who have been removed from their position, not because of things like sex scandals, but because of power scandals, where they have misused their power. And just like Uzziah, they have been prideful and they have sought to use their power and they run over everyone in front of them who disagrees with them. One of the reasons my family and I like this church so much is we totally don't sense that at all here. And we're so thankful for the humility of the leaders that we sense, that we see. But so many churches in evangelical circles are addicted to power. And then we see that in the leaders. Idolatry, we could go all kinds of different directions, but I want to focus on power once again. Evangelicals are becoming more and more addicted to power. This is not a military power, obviously. We don't have militia and so on. But for us, the draw is largely political power. If we could just have more political power, we could make the world a better place and bring the kingdom of God. It would be amazing. Now, caveat, we live in a democracy. You should vote. You should be involved in politics. We need to have opinions. We need to talk about these things. But we need to be very careful not to let Baal worship sneak into the church in an idolatry of power. Political power is not the final answer. We should be engaged, 
but we have to be very careful how we think of it. As a matter of fact, there have been many points in church history where the church had a lot of political power and it did not turn out well. And so we have to be very careful not to bring this Baal idolatry of power into the church that we're in today. Third point, experiential more than ethical. Turn to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah is the longest book in the Old Testament by word count. So if you just keep on flipping forward, you'll probably find it eventually. (laughs) Jeremiah chapter 7 is called the Temple Sermon because it's all about the temple. So let's start reading in verse 3. Jeremiah 7 verse 3. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of Yahweh, temple of Yahweh, temple of Yahweh. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever." So apparently there were some Israelites who basically thought of the temple as a good luck charm. The temple means God is for us. And it doesn't matter what else happens. God is always going to be for us. And Jeremiah says, no, 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 no. If you want to serve God, if you want to live in this place, you need to reflect God. God is a God who loves the poor and the oppressed. You need to do that as well. God loves justice. You need to love justice. And if you don't have good ethics, then the temple's gone. This is not a new theme with Jeremiah. Turn back to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah is about 100 years before Jeremiah. And he says something very similar to Jeremiah, except in far more shocking language. So prepare to be offended. Isaiah 1 verse 10. Hear the word of Yahweh, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. So Sodom and Gomorrah are the epitome of evil. You guys are like Sodom and Gomorrah, Isaiah says. And in contemporary terms, it would be equivalent to saying something like, yeah, like you and Stalin would get along really well. You guys are similar. I can see the connections. Highly offensive. Verse 11. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says Yahweh. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Same as Jeremiah. It's not a good luck charm. You need to have the ethics that follow after relationship with God. Now, for us as Christians, it's easy to misread Isaiah 1 as a condemnation of the ritual system as a whole. Like, 
That's for them. It's a good thing I'm after Jesus. The ritual system's gone. I don't have to worry about it anymore. But that's completely missing the point of the passage. The problem is not with the ritual system. Do you remember where that came from? That was God's idea. He kind of likes it. And so the problem is not what they're doing. The problem is with their ethics as they are doing it. So to help us feel a little bit more, I rewrote Isaiah 1 to make it a little more offensive to you. What to me is the multitude of your songs? I've had enough of your pianos and guitars. I do not delight in your sermons and testimonies. Bring no more vain financial gifts. Celebration of Sunday morning and Christmas and Easter have become a burden to me. My soul hates your life group attendance. When you pray, I'm not listening. That's what Isaiah 1 is saying. Now, once again, the problem is not with those things of themselves. Remember, I'm preaching here. Like, I'm not anti-sermon. The problem is our ethics as we do them. And so if our ethics are trashy, this is the kind of response God has to what we are doing. Faith is personal more than propositional, relational more than ritual, experiential more than ethical. Last week, we looked at the danger of legalism. This week, we're looking at the danger of antinomianism. We cannot forget proposition, ritual, ethics. But don't mishear me. I'm not saying go be better people. Instead, what I want to focus on is how you become better people. You start with the sermon last week, and out of that flows the sermon this week. As we have a personal, relational, experiential faith in God, out of that flows the correct propositions, ritual, and ethics. And so if you just try and jump into the second part of the equation, you're going to fail. You need that first part, which then brings us to the second part. As we experience new life in Christ, then that leads to acting out that new life in Christ. And so we need to pay attention to that second part, but not necessarily start there. It flows out of who we are in Christ. I want us to end today by thinking about the response of lament. Most of us in evangelical circles are not comfortable with lament, but lament is an important part of Old Testament spirituality and I think needs to be more regular parts for us as well. Lament is so helpful because it allows us to express our emotions, our negative emotions. Perhaps that's confession of sin. Perhaps that's frustration with God even. It allows us to bring that to God, to validate those emotions, to feel those emotions. But lament doesn't leave us there. It brings us to a place of trust. And so we're going to sing two laments in closing. And I want you to think about how we can experience some of those negative emotions, just like Israel did in the Old Testament, destruction of the temple. But then notice how the songs bring you to a place of trust as well. And so this is the beautiful part of how laments work. I want to end on a note of hope. So earlier in the sermon, I quoted from Ezekiel how the glory of God left the temple. Ezekiel ends with nine chapters about a future temple. And his debate is that an actual temple is at the church, something else entirely. But part of the beautiful part of that prophecy is the glory of God comes back to the temple. The departure is not permanent. But there's even a more amazing image associated with a river. Ezekiel sees a river coming out of the temple in Jerusalem going east. 
And if you go east from Jerusalem, you end up at the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is called the Dead Sea because it very much is dead. Nothing can dwell in it. All the fresh water that comes into it from the Jordan River and the, the wadis, they all get sucked up. They all die. Any fish that are in there, they all die. But this river changes things. He said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arava and enters the Dead Sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. Wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be very many fish. For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh, so everything will live where the river goes. The water that comes out of the temple is so full of life, it brings the dead sea to life. And for us as the church, we are the temple. We have this living water. And so the benediction for you going out today, go be the temple of God out of which flows living water that brings life to all around you.